This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. For the first time, I am Brenda Salter McNeil, one of the speakers for our time together. And it is, oh, we are dismissing the children. And so you guys get to go be a part of the special time that they've planned for you. And this is a great time for those of you who might be in the back who might want to come closer to the front when the children go to be in their special time that frees a few spaces in the front for those of us who might want to move closer and feel free to do that so dr brenda salter mcneil is who i am sound man why are we doing that all right because we're not going to stop that right <laughs> Amen. All right. It really has been an honor. I'm sincere about that. It has been an honor. And how about this? How about I center myself as the kids leave? Sometimes in the church that I grew up in, in the African-American church tradition, the preacher, before he or she would speak, would sing a song. And it's not because they want to sing a solo. It's basically an opportunity to invite the people of God to prepare their hearts for the word of God and to center themselves in the same for the preacher. So this is my prayer. And if it becomes your prayer without PowerPoint, without music, we just offer it up to the Lord. So as we begin just to center in now to hear the word of God, and after we pray this prayer and song, I'll read the word of God from Esther chapter 4, beginning at verses verse 1 and through 8. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you
this is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you hear now the word of God from Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 8? When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Tonight we are going to look at the subject of palace living, palace living. I can still remember exactly what happened when God called me into the ministry of racial reconciliation. Some people would say, did you go to seminary to do that? I had no idea that a person could have a ministry of reconciliation. I went to seminary like most people who do seminary because I felt called to ministry but I wasn't really clear what that ministry actually looked like. Do I have a witness? <laughs> and so I went by faith to seminary, hoping that it would get clear as I went through school. After I graduated, I went on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and I did campus ministry for a very long time. When I got to the school, Occidental College, where I served for most of my time in, in Southern California, the chaplain basically gave me a choice. I could choose anything that I was interested in, and what I discovered when I got to that college campus was that even though hundreds of students were coming on a regular basis to the large group meetings on our campus, out of the 200 students who came, only two of them were students of color. Now, I became a Christian at Rutgers University when I was 19 years old, and I knew that there were students probably who looked like me who were somewhere on that college campus in their dorm room like I was, on their knees, reading their Bible, who had come to faith all by themselves. And I wondered, how come they don't come to this InterVarsity group? Why don't they come to chapel? 
they are here somewhere. And so slowly the question of where are those students and why don't they come became one of those gnawing questions that led me toward ministry. I didn't know I was starting a ministry of reconciliation, I promised. I think what I was trying to do was find students who I thought would be blessed by coming to chapel and to our large group meetings, but slowly I began to understand the disconnect and why they didn't feel like they belonged, and out of that became ministry. That began to grow. I began preaching on college campuses around the country, and then eventually I started a ministry. I was having a pity party, I promise you. I was in my 30s, and I thought that I was supposed to be further along than I actually was. We were living in a student apartment and I was praying on my birthday about why God hadn't blessed more of all that I thought I was supposed to be doing by now. And the Lord spoke to me. Amen. And it went something like this. You will minister out of the overflow of what I'm doing in your life. You have nothing to share publicly except that which I do in your life privately. And somehow I felt like Wow, okay, one day I'll have a ministry and it'll be overflow ministry. So sure enough, my time with InterVarsity came to an end and I launched a ministry called Overflow Ministries. And I was preaching all over the place and it seemed to be going well. And I knew I was called now to some form of reconciliation. But when I tell you my umbrella called reconciliation had everything under it, oh, for me, reconciliation was reconciliation with God. It was men and women being reconciled. My husband's a therapist. And so it was marital therapy under reconciliation. Reconciliation and a healing came under reconciliation, racial reconciliation. I think I was trying to make sure I had a job, so I put anything that I could think of under the umbrella called reconciliation. Okay, how about that for honesty? That's what I was trying to do. So at, at some point, uh, having a 501c3 became really, really hard. You know, the fundraising letters and the raising support and all that kind of stuff. So I asked the guy to come and be a consultant and help me. And so he sat down, he met my board, he looked at our website and all this stuff, and he said something like this. I knew we were going to be birthing something new. I had no idea we'd be having a funeral. I paid him money to say something like that to me. <laughs> and then he said to me, Brenda, I know people, he said, anything that is this spread thin you're gonna have a hard time raising money. He said, people don't know exactly what you do. And he said, and the truth be told, everybody has a different idea of what Overflow Ministries is, and they're all right. And he said, as long as you are this hard to define, you won't be able to really build traction for a ministry. So you got to pick one of these things. And this needs to be your focus. And so he said, now I know other people who do evangelism. I know other people who do women's ministry. I know other people who do marriage ministry. And they're good at it. And he just started naming them. But he said, this thing right here, this racial reconciliation thing that you are doing under this big umbrella called reconciliation, he said, now, how many other people do you know their full ministry is devoted to reconciliation? And he said, I think if you would give your whole ministry to focus on nothing but racial reconciliation, you'd not only be good at it, you'd be great at it. And it scared me to death. 
I promise you, it scared me to death. And I started thinking about this challenge that he was laying in front of me. And I started talking to people that I loved and respected, chaplains around the country, and asking them, what do you think about me focusing solely on racial reconciliation? And this is the things they said. One chaplain said, look, you're going to really work yourself right out of a job. He said, we don't talk about this thing all year long. Maybe on Martin Luther King's birthday, <laughs> he said, maybe Cinco de Mayo, you might, get, you might get Black History Month, but this is not a topic we talk about all the time. That's what the man said. And I thought, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. And then I talked to a friend of mine in InterVarsity, a former staff worker named Paul Tokunaga, and I said to Paul, Paul, what do you think? Do you think I should make racial reconciliation my sole focus? And he said, Brenda, I have two, two answers for you. The first one is, I hope you won't do it. Because every person that I have known of, personally or historically, who have given their life to the Ministry of Reconciliation died. <laughs> and then we started naming people that we actually knew. And he talked about either they physically died or their marriage fell apart. And, and then he said, and my second answer is, I don't think I know anybody who's been more prepared to do it. Here in our text, my brothers and sisters, Hadassah has found herself in a situation that is extremely scary. And like me, she didn't see it coming. She has been swept up now by the soldiers sent by King Xerxes because of a decision to have a beauty contest that will now give the king the opportunity to see who are the most beautiful women throughout his entire empire. And he brought young virgins to be a part of a harem that he might pick the fairest of them all. This beauty contest that we call a beauty contest is nothing like what we know of in our, our day and time. This was not a volunteer endeavor. This was a horrifying, fearful thing to be as a young 16-year-old taken away from your family without your consent, it, it would be much like how we think of sex trafficking, except it's legal because it's under the decree of the king. She didn't volunteer to do this, and I thought about what it would feel like as a parent. I have two kids, a daughter and a son, and I can only imagine the terror I would feel if something happened to my Mia, and I couldn't find her. We were at a really big thing in Seattle not long ago. It's called the Bite of Seattle. You guys probably have it around the country. And she said she was going to go to some vendor, and there's thousands of people all over the place. And like I was sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, I was talking to somebody else. But maybe 20, 25 minutes went by, and even now, with her being 20 years old, 19, I thought to myself, where's Mia? And in a bit of a panic kind of got started inside, right? I'm thinking, wow, there's a whole crowd of people around here. And sex trafficking is a major industry in the Seattle North Pacific Northwest. And I was like, oh my God, where's my daughter? 
Just think about the parents in Nigeria. Over 300 girls went to a boarding school in Nigeria, and the Boko Haram come in, take these girls by force, and the only thing that these parents can now do is scream to the top of their lungs with signs in front of government and parliament offices, bring back our girls! Bring back our girls. So when Mordecai saw the soldiers coming, he knew what it meant. He knew what was about to happen. I told you she's a beautiful young girl, and he knows that she's beautiful, and he cannot stop what he sees coming. And so in a last-ditch effort to try to protect his daughter, to try to somehow care for her, cover her, he can't defy this edict that he sees is going to definitely impact her her life. So at the last minute, he says to her, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Now, who tells their daughter or son before they're about to leave them, go away to college, go off into the military, go study abroad or go volunteer in a mission field? Who says to their child, don't tell anybody who you really are? Hallelujah. That's not what folks say. As parents, we say things like, read your Bible, call home, keep $20 in your shoe, right? That's the kind of stuff we say to our kids. So why does Mordecai say to her, don't reveal your ethnic identity, don't speak your native language, Speak their language. Change your name. Call yourself Esther, not Hadassah. Assimilate. Blend in. Pretend you're just like them. Now, some of you all don't know what I'm talking about, but there are parents all over the country who have to have the talk (laughs) with their kids. And they know that if they don't teach them how to talk right and walk right and do right in dominant culture, they won't succeed. And so they constantly, boy, my mom was just like on us. She knew you got to cross your T's and dot your I's because you don't get to be made of mistake. My mom used to say, you've got to be better. Not everybody doesn't say that to their child. Not everybody says that, but I think Mordecai understands something about the time in which he lives. Maybe he understands that the time in which he lives is not so different from the time in which we live. Maybe there's some real similarities here. Maybe it is true that not everybody is judged by the content of their character. Sometimes people are judged by the color of their skin. Now, clearly, she was pretty enough to win this contest, but he was so scared that her chances would be diminished and she would not be given a fair shake that he thought if you just blend in to the dominant culture around you, maybe, just maybe, you'll be able to succeed. And this kind of what my husband and other sociologists and psychologists talk about is called racial socialization. 
It's, it's, it's an ideology that parents don't even know they're doing that basically teach us how to get along so we won't get hurt. They don't mean to make us lose our ethnic identity. But in the process, we do kind of lose ourselves a bit. I can remember a little Korean girl in my, my daughter's second grade class. Her name was Dayoon. And I remember Dayoon because I liked her mom. And so we had a play date, her daughter and my daughter. And one day, Dayoon brought her lunch to school. And it was a lunch that her mother had made for her with love and with care. She brought her lunch to school. And what did all the kids do when she opened up her ethnic lunch? They went, ooh, what's that? Ooh, you got snakes in your lunch. And it embarrassed her. Because what they were saying was, unless you eat what we eat, you're not normal. So what did Dayoon do? She went home and she never brought her lunch again. Never a lunch that her mother made. She insisted on taking sandwiches, peanut butter and jelly like all the other kids because we don't want to be discriminated against. We all want everybody to like us. And that's why on college campuses all over this country, we find students who have come here from other countries and they change their name to make it easier for us to say their name. It's the kind of stuff where someone's name is Francisco and we say, we're just gonna call you Frank. You don't mind that, do you? And after a while, you do learn to blend in, and you become just like everybody else. You talk like them, and you dress like them, and you change your name like them, and so Esther is doing it, and she is in this world that she didn't plan and didn't intend, but she has some very interesting things that has helped her to succeed. She is able to assimilate. Now let me say quickly, I am not advocating for assimilation, but the question because, becomes, does assimilation help? Does it help to be able to be in one culture and be culturally competent in another? Yes! So what I know about Esther is a few things, and I think she's got what I would call the X factor. The favor of God is on this girl's life. She's also humble. Somebody say humble. Her, her, her father said, do this, and she actually obeyed. Where is that? Lord, have mercy. <laughs> Where are those children who do what their parents ask them to do? Lord, have mercy. And not only is she humble and obedient, she's bilingual. Everybody say bilingual. She's bilingual. She speaks more than one language. She would not have been able to assimilate and change her name and speak their language if she wasn't capable of it. That's why yo aprendiendo a hablar español es muy importante. Maybe, just maybe, our ability to speak more than one language would actually save our lives. Maybe, just maybe, instead of insisting that people learn to speak our language, maybe we could learn to speak theirs. Oh! That's how we do it in the black church, everybody. <laughs> maybe, just maybe, we could learn to speak somebody else's language. I dare you to travel someplace else around the world, and you'll find people who don't speak one language or two languages or three. They speak five languages. What's up with us? Because I think what Esther might suggest to us 
is that our ability to be more global could save our lives. Our ability to be more fluent in the languages of others just might save us. And so does it work? Yes, she wins. This girl wins the beauty contest. I think that the favor of God helped. I, th <laughs> I think the prayers of the righteous father covered her. I think there's some things that helped her, but it's interesting now that she finds herself in the palace. She is palace living, and it's not what she planned or not what she hoped for. The guy that she was winking at, remember on the first night, she's not going to get to marry him. You either get to be the queen or you're in a harem for the rest of your life because you are now spoiled goods. So all those other girls who didn't win, they can't go back home. They're in a harem now. She does become the queen and she finds herself in a palace that she didn't plan. She didn't know she'd get there. And so she's palace living. And it's not what she hoped for. It wasn't what she planned, but it wasn't all bad either. I mean, she got a spa treatment for a whole year. Amen. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That sister had folks waiting on her hand and foot. She got a beauty and spa thing going for 365 days. I might try. I, I might try. It wasn't, it wasn't as bad as she thought. People were at her beck and call and things were going better than she anticipated. She has now found herself in a place of privilege, a place of position, and she now has some degree of power. That's what comes with palace living, position, privilege, power, and everything is going pretty okay in this palace until one day she is walking past the, the palace window and she looks outside and can hardly believe her eyes. She thinks she recognizes this person, but he looks so disheveled and so almost disfigured, hair grown out in an tangled mane that she, he resembles her, her uncle Mordecai? That kid, what? Mordecai? She immediately calls for her servants and says, take clothes out, Wa wash him up. He's a mess of a man. Oh my, help him, take clothes, wash him. Make him get himself together. She can hardly stomach the sight of this. He's weeping and wailing and making a public spectacle of himself. And then the story takes a very odd turn for me because instead of accepting these clothes, he sends them back. Now, I think that the reason this grabbed my attention so much 
is because I think Mordecai becomes a prophetic figure right here, right there, right now. I think he's saying to Esther and to us, you will not make me keep quiet. You will not make me shut up. I know that my screaming and my crying calls attention to myself and makes you feel uncomfortable. I know this is not the way civil folks are supposed to act. I know I told you to blend in, but I am going to stand out. I will not be quiet and I will not let you placate me. I will not let you quiet me. I will send the clothes back. My brothers and sisters, do you know that there are people who would like us not to cry aloud and to, and to talk about the injustices happening around us? There are people who would like us to shut up. They want us not to preach about it. Stop bringing it up. Why won't you just preach the gospel and stop talking about politics? And they were going to send us a check so that we will shut up and I dare you to send the clothes back. Send the clothes back. Amen. Send the clothes back. There'll be somebody who will threaten to take their kids out the youth group, youth pastor, if you keep taking the children into neighborhoods so they can learn to serve the poor. And they're going to say, if you keep doing that, Pastor Johnny, we're going to have to take Sally out. We'll just say, Sally, we're going to miss you and send the clothes back. <laughs> I can't tell you what's happening in the United States of America where folks are buying our silence. Grants that get us to shut up. Friendships that get us to not say anything about that. Lifelong members of the church who write the check that keep the lights on. And they're going to send the clothes out because we are making too much of a fuss. And they want us to pipe down. And I'm telling you, my brothers and my sisters, it will be a prophetic stance to send the clothes back. Sometimes the check has really too many zeros and tears will be rolling down your face. <laughs> but in the name of Jesus, send the clothes back. And not only did he send the clothes back, he sent the clothes back with, it, with an edict and information. Because he said, not only will I shut up, not shut up, I need you to speak up. I was wrong, Esther. I told you that you should blend in. I told you that you should assimilate. And now I realize the error in what I was saying. Because when it was just about your protection and your promotion, when it was just about watching out for numero uno, then that might have been okay. But there are other people's lives at stake, and it's not just about you. It's not just about your comfort, and it's not just about your education, and it's not just your promotion on the job. This is other lives are at stake here. And Esther, when it was all about you, you could assimilate into culture and just get along. But when everybody's life needs the real believers to stand and be counted, there's no more opportunities for us to hide in the palace. He said, you know what? The problem with palace living, Esther, is that you've gotten ignorant 
of what's happening outside the palace. That's why I had to come outside the palace gate so you could see me. Because you're not reading the paper that's coming from the local neighborhood anymore. You just don't know what they talk about. You haven't been to the barber shop, amen. You haven't, you haven't been where the folks hang out. You haven't been to the coffee shop where the local people talk. You would know that everybody is hurt and broken if you got close enough to the pain, but you've not been able to be close to pain because you have been in the palace oh my god has the church become a bit like a palace for the saints of god where we are a little isolated and insulated and therefore ignorant of what's actually happening oh my lord maybe just maybe we don't know enough about what people are actually talking about maybe we have not gotten close enough to what people are really saying to actually know what's going on we're watching TV in the palace, and so we know what they say, but we actually don't know what the actual people say. And he says, so let me send you some information. Everybody say information. He said, because you, the palace hasn't been bad, and I know you didn't plan it. And the palace is really not a bad place, but it is so protected that they only tell you what they want you to know. So I got to come out and give you the unabridged version. I got to come and give you the, 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 the one that's not censored. How about you hear what really is going on? And then he begins to tell her about a guy named Haman. And he said, now see, I told you to assimilate, but I, I, I confess I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't. Uh, everybody was told after he got this major promotion that they should bow down and really give him almost reverence. And he said there were Jews in the crowd who bowed down because they're in exile. And they probably thought, well, just bow down. How hard could it be? But something in, 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 in Mordecai rose up. Maybe he tried to bow down. And maybe he heard as he was going down, thou shalt have no other God ah, before me. And all of a sudden he found himself standing back up I am the Lord your God oh, oh my oh my who brought you up out of and before you know it he was standing back up and Haman and people were saying yo man you need to bow can this guy has come bow dude just bow and he was like okay I'm gonna give it a shot oh the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear before he knew it he was like I'm so I'm so sorry <laughs> I'm so sorry dude I just can't do it. I serve the Lord Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and I just can't give to you what I must give to God. So I mean, I respect you, but I cannot reverence you. And it made Haman mad. Feel like preaching tonight. Made him mad, made him mad. And so, now interesting, here's another interesting twist. He is mad at Mordecai's defiance. And usually when one person does something that makes you angry, who are you supposed to be angry with then? That person. Oh, but when ethnicity and race and culture get mixed into this very toxic combination, then something called stereotyping begins to happen and, 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 and profiling begins to happen so that everybody who looks like Mordecai now gets on my nerves. So he doesn't say, King, there's one guy who I don't like. I think we should discipline him. He says, you know, there's a group of people 
and they are all insolent. And we should not tolerate any of them. They are all thugs. They are all this. They are all that. They are all illegal. They are all terrorists. They are all rapists. What in the world? And because I am your sister in Christ, and I'm not here to beat any of us up, I just believe that God is calling us out of the palace into the world. I can remember once I was in a laundromat in Chicago, Illinois. My husband and I were living in an apartment. He was in his, ma- his doctorate program. And thank God we don't have to go to the laundromat anymore. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The, the laundromat is now at our house. Thank you, God. <laughs> but there was a day that I had to lug our laundry to the laundromat, and it was owned by a Korean family. And this day, the daughter of this Korean family was on duty. And she, uh, two kids, happened to be white, I'll just tell you, and they looked to be 9, 10. They came in and they put their money into a vending machine to get a, now do you guys call it soda or pop? Okay, see, (laughs) it was a soda machine for me, right? So they put their money in, I'm folding laundry, and so I, I can see them, they did put it in, and the soda didn't come out. So what did the kids do? Oh, they shut the machine. They shook the machine. They did the lever. Then they kicked it. <laughs> you know, they, they did what kids do, trying to get their stuff out. And the money didn't come out, and neither did the soda. So they go over to where she's sitting, and they tell her that they put their money in and that the soda didn't come out. So she comes over. And she has a special key that she can use in this machine. And so she uses it, and nothing comes out. And then as I'm watching this thing unfold, she turned to those two little boys, and she said, Why you lie? Why you lie? And she ripped them apart. And then I had this stereotypic discriminatory thought. All Korean people are rude. And then again, I thought, where'd that come from? And then I had to check my own biases, because I now had one person who did one thing, and now I stereotyped that to a whole group of people. My daughter, Mia, has two sets of godparents. Gabriela Caballero Cantu is her godmom, and then she has godfather and godmother, and they are, ready for this, Peter and Phyllis Cha, Korean. (laughs) And then I thought to myself, Peter and Phyllis are rude. They are some of the sweetest, kindest, godliest people I know. But you see, that's the way that we've been socialized to categorize people and put them in big lump sums. And then we can stereotype them and call them certain names. And those names then give us permission to do certain things. We don't have names anymore. It's not Mordecai. It's all of them. They're Muslims. 
those terrorists, those illegals, and then they're not even human anymore. And that gives us permission not to care about them anymore. And so he goes into the king's room and basically says, look, I will make it financially profitable for you to let me kill them. And my brothers and my sisters, I'm here to tell you that wherever people's lives are being destroyed, somebody who was far away from the crime in a high-rise building wearing a crisp white shirt is benefiting from the destruction of people's lives. Where water is polluted with lead in Flint, Michigan, somebody made money off of that, and it's just the truth where we export things that we know we can't use in this country, but we export pesticides to Mexico that are illegal here, but they use there. Somebody's dying and somebody's profiting. I learned that in New York City, that there's a higher incidence of asthma amongst children who are Latino and African-American in Brooklyn and in the Bronx. You know why? Because you can dump trash in landfills closer to where they live than where we live. So it's not that their parents love them any less than we love our kids. It's because somebody makes money by dumping trash so close to them that they're sick. And Mordecai says we ought to cry about that. It ought to double us over and make us cry out loud and say to the folks in the palace, you ought to know about this. So he sends that information into her and to us. And he says, if you really want to come out of the palace, get informed. Get informed. Who have you talked to? Who has given you information about what's really happening out there? And that's where Esther and I both got scared. Because now we can't say that we don't know. Now we can't say that we haven't heard. I think that's why God sends Mordecai to church. I think God sends Mordecai outside of the church house called Palace so that we, the people of God, can't say we didn't know. Maybe that's why I've been called for such a time as this. So that we won't be able to say that God didn't send us a UPS, amen. Special delivery right to the conference. And it scares her and it scares me. And I think she said, who? Me? I can't get involved. I I see what's happening and I understand the dilemma, but I would lose my job. Really, I'm not a real queen. I just kind of won the contest. (laughs) I'm not really sure what he feels about it. It's been a whole month and we've not had a real good conversation, so I don't even know if I'm in his good graces. Who? Me? You know, they put me out of the church. Do you understand? I've been a Presbyterian my whole life. (laughs) You can't be talking to me, Mordecai. When that dear man, my consultant, said, make your ministry completely devoted to reconciliation, I thought, who? Me? I left InterVarsity, and I don't have any other source of income but my preaching. 
you are going to cause what has been a 365 day of a year kind of job to become a one month job. I can't do that. What is it that God is calling us to? And what makes our heart beat fast? And what's making us scared? Who's outside the palace gate of your life? I'll take a little worship right here because we're about to go into silence. So that would be nice. Because where we are is where Esther was. Esther wasn't bad. Neither are we. We have done all we know to do. And we've tried to live as faithfully as we know how to live. And we find ourselves in places of privilege. And now we've got a bit of a position. Not always well paid, but we're the pastor now. We've got this privilege, we've got this position. We've got a little power. We have influence. People listen to the things we say, and we're trying to use it. We're as kind as we can be in the palace. And so how dare Mordecai come and ask us to get more involved? How dare he suggest that, unbeknownst to ourselves, we've stayed in the palace so long that we don't even know what other people outside the palace talk about anymore. We've been so involved in our own jobs, my own speaking life and my own travel and your own stewardship meetings and Presbytery stuff. We, and the truth is, I'm not sure the last time I actually talked to a Muslim. I don't, have I? So my brothers and sisters, this is a moment of silence for us just to give this time to God. I'm really not trying to manipulate us to do one thing other than to be God's people and to hear God's voice. So as there's worship in the room, would you just say to God, what, what in the world? Are you saying something to me? Who, who's trying to buy my silence? And what clothes should I sit back? I took the check but I didn't realize that now that guy thinks he can tell me what I get to preach. In the silence of your hearts, would you just give this time to God?
Lord God, we love you so very much. And we thank you for loving us more. Thank you for the way you send prophets outside the palace just to get our attention and call us back on mission. Thank you for the way you make our hearts beat fast again. Thank you that our discipleship is not supposed to be some boring endeavor, but an adventure. An adventure that feels like a wild ride that scares us to death and makes us hang on for dear life as we chase and try to keep up with the King of glory. Help us to know that it is not to hurt us that you call us out of the palace, but it's to free us into this vast, expansive ministry that would literally change our lives as you change the world. Thank you, God. Thank you for waking up in us, the little kid that wants to go on an adventure again. Come, Jesus. Take us with you. Hold our hand. We're scared. But would you take us on the ride of our lives? Help us to know that discipleship just wasn't for the young folks. Discipleship is for us until the day we die. We ask you to do it for us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,